I have a Christmas question for you. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Why do we wrap presents? Have you ever thought about it? We might just take it for granted. Uh, I've been putting some thought into it this week because it's kind of an interesting thing. Like, why don't we just buy all the stuff and just like as you get it since Thanksgiving and you just stick it under the tree and it's like, there's a toolbox for somebody, uh, but you can't touch it now, right? But we do this thing and it's interesting because I, I've had situations where I like, I paid for wrapping paper that was probably more expensive than the gift I was wrapping. <laughs> the paper is stinking expensive. And then like, you know, what do you do? How much tape do I put on there? And I've been present, so I'm like, okay, I'm going to, okay, too much tape, not enough tape. Do you do the ribbon, do you do the bow? Do we keep the tissue when we're done? Like, there's all these questions that we have about these things. Some of you guys are expert gift wrappers. I mean, you're just really good at it. It looks like a piece of art. I know a lady who has a gift wrapping room in her house. I, let me say that again. A gift wrapping room. We got like a box that sits under the bed and you pull it out and there's some tape maybe in it. And like this is a whole room and she's got like this wall of all these different papers and there's this table. And it's, shh, shh, shh. it's beautiful. Then some of us, you can call yourself out right now, are terrible gift wrappers. Anybody want to own that? Me personally, like I'm decent at it, but I would much rather just give it to you in the bag it came from the store in. Like here, I got this from Walmart, and uh, now you know that whatever's in there came from Walmart. And so, like, that's where I am. But it's interesting. So why do we wrap the gift? It's, I, obviously, it's fun. That's why we wrap the gift. It's a lot of fun. I think, like, maybe the primary element there is, like, there's this anticipation. Like, it's, ooh, this is for you. You can't see it yet. But just hold It's got your name on it. And I know it's going to be mine. And, ooh, and then there's, like, the second thing might be, like, there's a mystery to it. You done the, like, what is it? Put it down. Stop shaking it, kids, right? And so there's that going on. And like, it could be anything. It could be, and until you open it and get disappointed, it could be anything, maybe anything that could fit in this box, maybe keys to something better, right? So the wrapping of the gift is, is a whole thing. It can create some false expectations. Did y'all see this trend a few years ago? Hopefully you're not still doing this. You're a bad person if you do this. The people that would wrap a gift and then the kid would unwrap it, it'd be like an Xbox box or like an iPhone box, but like inside was like socks or underwear. You're just like, ha, 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 you thought you were getting an Xbox. Kids like, I hate Christmas. And like, so you better have like an Xbox in the closet if you're going to do that. So like you could be mean with it. But ultimately, I think the gift wrapping thing is a good thing, and I like it. I like the, I like the anticipation. I like the excitement. I like the mystery. I like the question of do we keep the bows this year? Are we throwing them away? I like all that. It's all part of it. By the way, thank you to so many of you who wrapped gifts and brought them uh, for the YMCA Angel Tree. Uh, we had every one of our tags taken this week. Reminder, if you didn't bring them in, bring, they actually are due today. So if you don't get them in today, you can take them to the YMCA. Just let, them know, let us know. But uh, we're in this series called Twas the Night Before. And it was a teaching series that we're doing from now until Christmas Eve. And the whole idea is like, what's going on before Jesus comes into the world? That's the big Christian uh, layer that we lay onto the Christmas season is the idea that we celebrate Jesus, God in the flesh, coming in human form as a baby. And so we're t each week we're taking a look at a story, and we're taking a look at a word. And last week we looked at Zechariah and Elizabeth, and the word was hope. This week, we're taking a look at another one of Jesus's very close relatives, his mother, Mary. And our word, a lot like what happens when you've got these gifts wrapped up in paper, and you don't know what's inside, but you're glad you got it. The word is faith. What is faith? 
How do we apply it to our life? And how in the world does this story about Christmas tie into all that? Uh, let's just take a look at it. If you've got your Bible today, I'd encourage you to open to Luke chapter 1. Uh, again, we were there last week. Luke chapter 1. Luke is in the New Testament of the Bible. By the way, if you need a Bible to read, you're welcome to look it up on your phone or whatever. Well, we got a whole lot of Bibles, paper Bibles, out in the lobby at the shelf by the door. Grab one now. Grab one later. Keep it if you want to have it. We want to make sure everybody's got a good readable version of the Bible. And in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26, we start to see the story of Jesus come together. Last Last week we had uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah, and it was kind of like this, this precursor to the Jesus story, the forerunner of Christ, John the Baptist is born. But when we get to verse 26, we're going to see Mary and a story that many of you may be very familiar with, and maybe some of you are hearing it for the first time, but for all of us, it's super valuable in seeing the faith of a person who allowed a lot to happen. We pick it up in verse 26. It says, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. A lot of place markers there. we got location. Luke was big on details. He was a historian and basically an investigative journalist. So these are all places and times that you can kind of check against other things. Verse 27, the angel appeared to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, who was a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel went to her and said, greetings to you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you couple of details here to just point out. It says it's in the sixth month. Uh, this isn't June. It's the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. So there's kind of a time marker as you just, the story before that was about Elizabeth last week. We see a very similar scene to last week. The same messenger from God, the angel Gabriel, shows up this time not to Zechariah in the Holy of Holies, but to a girl named Mary. It says that she was pledged to be married to a guy named Joseph, and he's identified as a descendant of David. That's a really big deal in the Jesus story. He comes from the house and the line of King David, if you know that figure from the Old Testament, and that's kind of a prophecy that happened among David's life. There will someone be on your throne forever, and Jesus is going to take that throne. Um, and it says she was pledged to be married to him, and this is very vital to the Jesus story. Let's just talk about this engagement and marriage piece. First century Jewish culture. Uh, engagement and marriage is not these romantic uh, ring ceremonies that we do today. Uh, it was very like legally binding uh, and, and deeper than probably some of the stuff that we do, especially in engagement. There were two phases of the marriage process. There was the engagement process, which was actually between the two dads. The, the father of the groom would be out looking for a, uh, a bride for his son, and he would go out and he would approach the father of a young lady, and they would make a deal. And it was a legally binding contract, and there were goods exchanged, and it was a big deal. It was a really big deal. I think our whole culture today would be like, what? We would scoff at it. But it's the way things worked in that culture, even in some cultures here today. The second half of the process was the marriage ceremony itself, and that was kind of the commitment between the man and the woman. And then... Uh, they were officially married. But here's the thing. Once you were engaged, you were legally bound. You had to legally get divorced to break off this engagement because some things had been exchanged, some vows had been made. It, it was a pretty solid deal. And something that I think is, is key here is that it says that she was engaged, and, and the, the engaged couples would generally like respect kind of the traditional role of, of marriage in terms of they wouldn't cohabitate, they wouldn't live together, they would uh, remain abstinent during that time period and that kind of stuff. And this is key because he goes and says uh, she was a virgin. Now, there's two kind of understandings of virgin. This is a little history for you, a little other stuff. It could just mean a young woman, a young woman. And she definitely was probably a young woman. In this culture, uh, you're probably 13 to 15 years old, ladies, when you become betrothed. I have a 14-year-old daughter, and she would not be about that right now. I would probably freak out if some dude was like, hey, I'm thinking about uh, sitting in my house. I'm like, boy, you better get off my porch. I will slap you. <laughs> 
but this is a cultural thing, and so Mary's not freaked out about it. It's a total normal thing for her. Uh, but also, the, the word virgin can mean someone who had not yet uh, had intercourse. And so you've got that whole thing going on there as well. And she was also that, because we find out later in the story those details. Gabriel's greeting's pretty sweet. Greetings, you who are highly favored. And it's interesting Mary's response to this. We pick it up at verse 29. It says, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. It's kind of like when someone's like, hey, I, I need to talk to you about something. And you're like, what do you need to talk to me about? <laughs> she was like, what, what is this about? Understandably, we talked last week about kind of the shock of seeing an angelic figure. I mean, Zechariah was just stunned, didn't, didn't understand. The angel says to her, well, don't be afraid, Mary. You found fa- favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. And you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. There goes that kind of prophecy thing being fulfilled, verse 33. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants, which is the nation of Israel, forever. His kingdom will never end. So this is an announcement to Mary. You're going to have a baby. It's going to be a big deal. Have you ever received news that you weren't quite ready for? I will never forget talking to my buddy, Billy, who uh, they found out they were going to have a, a kid, and they went for the first ultrasound, and I guess they were going to hear a heartbeat or whatever you do with that first thing. And he called me, and he was like, I was like, how'd it go, man? He was like, it was like quiet. I could see the paleness in his face over the phone just about in his voice. And he said, yeah, yeah, they, 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 found, they found a heartbeat. I was like, yeah, good. He was like, yeah, they found, they found two heartbeats. <laughs> He was like, he's going to be twins. And like at the time, I was this cocky dad of a three-year-old, my first son. Like, yeah, I'm a parent. I got to figure it out. Now, after 17 years of parenting, I know I know nothing. I know nothing. Don't lie and say you know anything. Um, but at the time, I was like, I'm going to give Billy some advice. And he's like, twins. And I'm like, bro, I got nothing for you. I don't know what to tell you. He was glad to be a dad. They love these boys. But at the moment, you know, you hear this news and you're just like, Okay. And I just imagine that Mary's like, I'm going to need you to write that down. Because she goes over some other things. It's not, it's not just, it's not just that, that Mary's going to have a baby. It's going to be like a special baby. A special baby. He's going to be called the King of the Most High. He's going to be the Son of God. Now, there's a couple problems with this. First of all, Mary understands the biological part of babies. And know that babies come from very specific biological circumstances. And she knows she had not partaken in any of these circumstances. So she's like, you mean later? You mean like another day? Like one day? Or it's clear, I think, to Mary that she's being told it's going to happen right now. How will this be? She asked in verse 34. I can just hear the tone. Can you hear the tone? How, how would this be? Since I'm a virgin. The angel answered. The Holy Spirit will come on you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. And so Mary's sitting there just being... what? Now here's the deal. I think there's two sides of this conversation. On the one hand is like... To God, this isn't a mind-blowing proposition. God creates everything, right? And, like, isn't every baby just kind of a miracle, <laughs> you know? And to, to, like, animate life into an unborn child when the conception happens. Like, that's a beautiful thing. For God, it's kind of like run-of-the-mill, this is what I do. I create, I make. 
to Mary, this is a very big deal. What do you mean? One, how did the biological circumstances that happen? He, the angel explains it. Well, God's going to put in you a baby because he's the creator. He can do that. It's not outside his wheelhouse. But on the other hand, what'd you say about this baby? He's going to be the son of God. Like, my, my child? And that's only half the story. Like, she's just finding out about it. I don't know if she was, had the presence of mind to be thinking forward. And, like, there are even people, you know, like, it's, it's, it's kind of scandalous for a young lady who's not legally married yet to have become pregnant and all these other pieces of the puzzle. Like, there's all this stuff going on. It's all rattling around in Mary's brain. And then he's going to be the son of God. Let me just ask you. If someone told me, hey, your, your, your child that's about to be born is going to be called the son of the most high. He will be the son of God. What does that even mean? We have 2,000 years of history and scholarship and sermons and people explaining stuff. When we hear that, we have like a box for that. We have a category, right? We're like, yeah, 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 yeah son of God. Son of God. Philippians chapter 2, and it talks about God emptying himself and becoming a human man. And like, you, you, you get all that if you know the, the story of Jesus and who he is. But to Mary, she's a 15-year-old girl in the middle of nowhere who has no context. In this setting, it seems like she's all by herself, and she's just going, to what? There's a lot to take in. The angel doesn't leave her with, like, nothing. I love how God often gives kind of some, often he'll drop a bomb on somebody, and he's just like, all right, just see what happens. On this one, he's going to give her a little bit of something to chew on. He's like, even Elizabeth, your, your relative, is pregnant. Now, I wonder, I was trying to read between the lines and see if I could find somewhere else. So if you know of this, point it out to me, because I just wasn't able to find it this week. But the idea that, did Mary already know that Elizabeth was pregnant? They were relatives. There's kind of a concept that maybe it was her aunt or a cousin of some, some kind. John the Baptist is called the cousin of Jesus. But like, did she already know about Elizabeth? It's six months, okay. And this is kind of rural stuff and family stuff. Like, had someone made the journey down to Nazareth where Mary is? Is she, is she like, did she know about Elizabeth? Or is she just now finding out? Elizabeth's pregnant? Hold on. You mean like Grandma Elizabeth? Like, you know, Great Aunt Elizabeth? Like, that would be really strange news to receive. But at any rate, I think the big point that Gabriel's making is, listen, God is up to some amazing things, some impossible things. And Mary, you are at the center of it right now. You're about to be in the middle of what God's doing. And her response in verse 38 is, I don't know what I would have said in some crazy thing, but she says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. So throughout scripture, there's lots of moments where God or an angel kind of appears to somebody or they hear a voice or something. And, and like they get some kind of like earth shaking news like that. And a lot of them push back. I think about Moses. Moses is going to make his Old Testament figure. He ends up being like this, a major important figure in Jewish history. But God kind of speaks to Moses and says, listen, I got this great plan for you. And Moses is like, I think you got the wrong guy. <laughs> I think you got the wrong guy. I'm not an eloquent speaker. I wasn't prepared for this. They're not going to listen to me, blah, 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 blah. And then God's like, okay, let me show you some stuff. And boom. I think about Zechariah last week. You know, John the Baptist's dad. Even him was like, I mean, he's in the Holy of Holies, the holiest place inside the temple. An angel is talking to him. And he goes, how can I be sure? You know, like I just need. But Mary, I don't know if it was the youth. I don't know if it was just. I think she was just made different. If you look at people like Abraham and these these major pivotal figures in history, I think that God sees in some of us like something extra special. Like, I think that you can handle this. And so whatever the reason, Mary's response is not one of, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's just like, okay. 
I don't have all the answers, but I don't know. That's the story. That's the story. And I just want to take a minute to talk about faith. What is faith? There are so many different definitions for faith, and like maybe you have your own concept. I found a new one this week that I'd never heard before. It's another book I'm reading. Um, the guy, a Quaker theologian named Elder Tr- Elton Trueblood, he says this, Faith is not belief without proof. Faith is trust without reservation. I really like that, and we're going to kind of come back to that. Maybe that's something that you want to just jot down. Let's leave it up there for just a minute. I mean, the story of Mary is one of someone who didn't have all the answers. Many times when we don't have all the answers, our default reaction, when we don't understand the world around us, our default kind of emotion is fear. I'm scared. I don't know. So, ah, I don't know. I need more information. What's going to happen? I can't move forward unless I know more. And the root emotion for the unknown is fear. That's why, I mean, that's why we're afraid of the dark. That's why we don't like to look under the bed or in the closet at somebody's house. That's like when we hear a strange noise, our first reaction is, someone's probably here to kill me. Like, no, no, you you live in a house that's, you know, 80 years old and it's creaking. No, 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 probably a serial killer, probably, right? Like we immediately go to the fear. That's our default reaction. That's why we get nervous when our finances don't add up. It doesn't matter that you've never gone bankrupt, but this time you're like, it might be it. This is the one. This is it. It's why we're apprehensive to ask people for favors because, help me out, what if they say no? What if they say yes? (laughs) Like it would be awesome if they said yes, but that's not where our mind goes. We get nervous because our default reaction to the unknown is fear. And let me tell you this, that is very rational. It's very rational. It's a good survival mechanism. It's how in the woods when a big bear comes up to you, you don't try to forge a relationship with that bear. You run. Yeah, you kind of go on what you know, and you, fear is, is a healthy thing in many places. Mary has no idea about the future, but her posture is not one of fear. She's, I mean, kind of taken aback. There's an angel in the room or whatever. But instead, it's a posture of faith. I've seen it said that like fear and faith are kind of two sides of the same coin, maybe. Or I don't know the analogy. Maybe it's like two swings of the pendulum. They're on different ends. They're kind of converse to each other. The idea is that like the opponent to faith is fear and vice versa you want to beat fear find faith the book of hebrews in the new testament kind of near the end of the new Testament. we're going to look there right now if you want to flip over there hebrews chapter 11 i mean the author of hebrews uh, it appears to be that this person is like a pastor or teacher of some kind and the whole book of hebrews is kind of i think a lot of people believe that this hebrews was meant to be read in one sitting like you're listening to a sermon so by the time you get to chapter 11 it's kind of the conclusion of a lot of things that were already said and it gets to 11 and the book of hebrews is a book that kind of takes the old testament law and the history of the old testament and it kind of explains it in light of jesus like this is why the old testament stuff makes sense with what jesus is and then where he lands at the end of the book in chapter 11 is faith I think one of the greatest ways to see how something works is to visual, visually see it. I got to uh, coach football for a little while, and it was a lot of fun. But if you're just like, hey, listen, I want you to run this play. I want you to want to run a wheel route, and I want you to do a go route, and I want you to do this, and I want you to do that. And, and the kids are like, huh? But then if you take the chalkboard out, and you're like, okay, so this is you. This is you. I want you to do this is you. This is you. Okay, now let's walk through it in slow motion. This is you. This is you. And then when you can see it, you can start to understand it. Hebrews 11 is the author going, you want to see faith? Let me show you faith. 
And so what he does is he goes through basically most of the Bible, and he looks at the highlight characters of all the Bible who had all this faith, and he shows what they were up against and how their faith uh, was manifest. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, famous kind of biblical definition of faith. It says, now faith is the confidence in what we hope for. I hope this is going to happen, so I'm going to have confidence in that. And it's the assurance about what we do not see. So there is an element of faith that's like that gift wrapped with paper. I don't know what's inside, but I do know who gave me the present. And so based on that information, I have some confidence in what I hope for. I have some assurance of what I do not see. And it says, this sets up the rest of the chapter, verse 2. This is what the ancients were commended for. So he's going to go through some of the ancients. He, he talks to Abel and Enoch, maybe less familiar figures to most of us in the room, and he kind of praises them up a little bit. We're going to look at a few more in a second. But in verse 6, he gives this kind of second uh, important phrase. He says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Can we just let that sentence sink in for just a minute? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And so then he's going to go through some more of the ancients and explain them. So, for example, in verse 7, he gets to Noah. Maybe you know Noah's story. He's credited with kind of being the last faithful person on earth. And he, there's a flood. There's a big ark. And so, by faith, Noah, when warned about the things not yet seen, in holy fear, he built an ark to save his family. I love this kind of comparison. It's like, this is fear. That's our natural reaction to the unknown. But he calls this holy fear. Which is an interesting way to look at faith. I'll leave that there for you. Like, yeah, yeah, you're scared. I get it. But there's a way to point that at God. And by faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with the faith. I wish I could unpack that more. I'll just say this. Like, you know, by the fact of Noah accepting, like, okay, it looks like God's going to flood everybody and whatever. And he just says, I accept that. I'm going to build this boat. It took him like 100 years to build the boat. And in the process, what he's saying, can you imagine during that process going, everyone that I know is going to be dead. <laughs> Everything that I love is going to be gone. Like just sometimes by accepting God, we are by default pointing out that people who live opposed to God are opposed to God. Sometimes our faith is a way of like recognizing that the world is broken and that without Jesus, there's no hope for them. And that's a hard place to be if you've ever had a family member that doesn't have the same faith as you. You're like, I can't accept this because if I accept this, this means that this is true. But faith in God is not in vain. That's Noah. Verse 8 gets into Abraham. This is a huge story. I'll summarize it by looking at a couple of verses. It says, by, Ab by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place where he would later receive as his inheritance... He obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. Now, this is a big, big story in the book of Genesis, and the whole idea is that God kind of shows up to Abram. Abram didn't worship God. He was, he was probably a pagan. He probably had idols in his house. But something about the presence of God in his life made him go, ooh, I believe in that. <laughs> and so God says, I want you to pack up everything you have, your household, everything, your family, your, your, your flocks, and just move. Just go to the place that I will show you. And, and he has to go to his flock hands and say, listen, guys, pack it up. Pack it up. Where are we going, Abram? Uh, We'll see. We'll see, but pack it up. Where are we going? We'll see. And like, that's faith. He didn't know where we was going. And eventually, he, along the way, God shows him piece by piece by piece. Can I tell you, this is what faith is, by the way. The, the first step we take is not the last step. And so often, God's like, listen, I got big plans for you. But listen, what I need to know is, can you trust me right now? 
Yeah, 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 yeah. But what's going to happen? Who am I going to marry? Where am I going to live? Where am I going to retire? That ain't for you to know right now. What I need to know is, will you trust me? And along Abram's journey, something amazing happens as God kind of changes his name to Abraham. He's not had a child. God gives him this amazing promise in Genesis chapter 12. The entire world will be blessed through your family lineage. And Abram's like, how's that going to happen? Because I don't have any kids. And I'm super old. And my wife is super old. And God's like, you let me worry about that. He does have a child. And through that child, all the world's going to be blessed, presumably. But then Abram believes, oh, God wants me to sacrifice my child. Hebrews 11 talks about that. What? I thought he was the hope of the world. I need you to sacrifice him, Abram. Do you trust me? So he, he, he starts to go through with it. Insane in our minds. I want you to remember, maybe you didn't know this. In that culture, it was actually common for people to believe that their gods wanted to sacrifice their children. Uh, and I love this because God's like, yeah, 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 this is what you expect from a God. I just want to see that you trust me. And then when the moment comes for him to actually sacrifice his child, which who could even imagine that? God's like, stop. I don't want you to do this. I just wanted to know, do you trust me? I'm never going to ask you to kill your children for me, like all these other demonic forces that the other nations worship. I'm only going to love you and do the best for you. And by the way, here's a ram that you can offer to me and sacrifice instead. And by faith, Abram took the steps. He drags his son out for this moment. All these other things. He forms uh, covenants with other nations. He, he, uh, he, he, I mean, all these things that Abram does in this long, extensive story are the steps of his faith. In fact, the evidence of his faith is not just what he says he believes, but the actions he's willing to take. Then in verse 23, we get to Moses. No one was more revered in Jesus' day than Moses. I mean, Moses is, is the godfather of everyone's faith. And so, like, the law, literally, this is the law that they lived by, was considered the law of Moses. Verse 24, it says, By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as, Pharaoh's, as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose instead to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. If you don't know Moses' story, he had the ability to live in a palace and be all posh and well taken care of. But once he becomes aware of who God is and he does these other things, he said, I, I can't be like this. I've got, to, I've got to go out and live among my people, the Israelites. And the amazing things begin to happen. Moses, who is so reluctant to be a leader, ends up confronting Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world. God uses him to do these amazing miracles that no one can deny. And he emancipates the, Israel, the Israelite slaves from Egypt. And they walk out and they begin the process of claiming the promised land. And it's Moses' faith, his willing to come outside of this scary spot and say, I don't know what's going to happen, but I trust you without reservation. And then he does it. And he goes on and on and on in Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 33, we get there, and it kind of just begins to summarize. He says, all these people who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned into strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies, women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment, and they were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskin and goatskin, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground. 
These were all commended for their faith. Yet, this is huge. None of them received what had been promised. Since God had planned on something even better for us, so that only together with us, they might be made perfect. So, each of these figures in all of biblical history received this proverbial gift from God. Wrapped in his signature goodness paper. And, and they saw it and they were willing to accept the life that they had. And they were willing to take these steps of faith step by step by step. They didn't know what was inside, but they know who gave the gift. And they were willing to go through whatever it took to see it through. And this is interesting. All of them did all that stuff. Remember the promise that was made to Abraham I mentioned in Genesis chapter 3? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you great. I'm going to make your name great. You're, all nations are going to be blessed through you. And they were all living in the same promise that God was going to turn the world upside down, that he was going to bless the whole world. But all of them lived and died before the promise was actually fully fulfilled. And then add to the list a young lady named Mary. The one person who finally can say, I'm going to get to see the promise. What all these people lived for, the faith that they had in God, and listen, don't hear me wrong, like God showed them all kinds of amazing things. It's not like they just, well, well life was terrible, so I guess I'll never be happy. No, there's all kinds of promises, but it said there's one even better. And in this moment, Gabriel comes to talk to this young lady and says, listen, you're going to have a baby. He's going to be the son of God. And we know the rest of the story. That he was God who came in the flesh. Who lived a perfect life. Who was able to give that life so that our sin can be paid for. And that we can join with all of those others who came before us. Who walked in faith. Who took the box not knowing what was inside. And said, I will live for him. Guys, we're called to be a people of faith. Faith in the one true God. Not belief without proof, not blind faith. And I think a lot of people in the world want to look at Christians and be like, you guys are stupid. Man, God, God's track record is immense. It, no one, even on their first day walking in to Jesus and understanding him, that, no one is walking in with no track record. Now, they might not know it yet. They have to learn it on their own. Each one of us has to go on the journey. We have to answer our hard questions. That's part of it. That's okay. If you're in a place in your life right now, you're like, I don't know where my faith is. That's totally cool. God only wants us to take the one step at a time. That's all you can do. That's all you're capable of. But it's there. It is so there. Undeniable evidence. We've got a book in the lobby that maybe you've read, and if you haven't, take a look at it, pick it up if you want. It's called More Than a Carpenter. It's one book of a guy's story, a guy named Josh McDowell, who was uh, an atheist. He didn't believe that God existed, and his wife was a Christian, and he was an investigative journalist. And so he said, listen, wife, will you shut up about your faith if I can prove that it's all a lie? <laughs> and she's like, yeah, yeah, go for that. So he begins to investigate the Jesus story, and step by step, he starts to become convinced <laughs> And he becomes a Christian. He's actually one of the greatest Christian apologists of our generation. An apologist is someone who looks at the evidence for faith and kind of proves it. And that, that book is just a summary of, of his life. It's there. It's not belief without proof. Faith is trust without reservation. I don't know what this next step is going to do. 
But I know you're not going to allow me to fall on my face and be separated from you. I need to clarify. Those steps are not always easy. Walking it, you heard the list of like, these people are the people God is so proud of. Wearing goat skin and sheep skin and living in caves and killed by swords and fighting lions. And, I mean, but would you rather live in truth or would you rather be separated from the creator? And those are not the only choices. Because what God offers is relationship with him through Jesus. Love, forgiveness, acceptance, family. Like this moment with Doug this morning, that wasn't just like, hey, there's a dude here. Let's make him sit on the stage. Like I literally had a conversation with Doug. Hey, man, we, we try to pray with people when they leave. Would you like to do that? He literally said, I mean, I don't know. I probably wouldn't love this, but it would mean a lot. Because this is family. This is what God invites us into. Community, relationships, transformation, life change. Henri Nguyen, I think that's how you say his name, French uh, professor, theologian. He wrote a lot of really good Christian thoughts. And uh, he tells this story about faith. He says, I took this trip to like a, a circus and I saw these trapeze artists. And they're swinging and they're flying and I'm watching the whole thing. And he said, I had an epiphany as I watched them. He said, that is a picture of faith. He said, the acrobat who's flying through the air is not really the star of the show, even though we're the one like, yay, they're flying through the air. Though he gets all the attention, that artist is only able to do his amazing feats because he knows that on the other side, there's someone who's going to catch him. That's a great picture of what it's like to live in God in faith. We can fly through. Does anyone feel like they're flying through the air half the time? And you just, ah! Imagine having the ability to know, I'm going to get caught. It's the fear of not getting caught that makes us live in constant fear and anxiety, and we're on medication and in therapy, and I'm all for medication and therapy if that's what you need. But sometimes at the root of it is that we just don't have a foundation of faith. Faith is trusting the catcher. And he says this uh, on Renewon, if we are to take risks to be free in the air, in life, we have to know that there's a catcher. We have to know that when we come down from it all, we're going to be caught. We're going to be safe. The hero is the least visible. Trust the catcher. Two things to wrap up. First thing is a little pop quiz. This is in your head. Think about it. The only way to really live in that life of trusting the catcher is to be willing to uh, submit. Like say, okay, I, I trust you. Like I surrender. It's about surrender. The process, the moment of becoming a Christian. We talk about baptism. We talk about confession of your faith. We talk about all these moments. But really, it's like a, a, a cognitive decision to say, I'm no longer the Lord and ruler of my life anymore. Jesus is. That's the ultimate decision of faith. And so the pop quiz is just this simple question, who is in control of your life? And so let me give you some scenarios. And I want you to be serious, honest with yourself. Who controls your purpose? Who controls your work? Who controls your home? Who controls your thought life? Your worldview? Who controls your marriage? Who controls your, your kids? Your calendar? Your budget? Your hobbies? Who controls your ability to rest? Who controls your health? Someone is in control of all those areas. Some of the answers, if you're honest, might be, I'm in charge of that. Or, 
I let Fox News or CNN decide what I think. Or I let my boss dictate everything. Or I let my wife or my husband or my kids dictate that. I let my high opinion of my education dictate that. I like my personal finances dictate that. There's so many different things that can control our lives. But what if we could slowly and surely and step by step say, I give that up to God. What does he have to say about these things? How does he want me to raise my family? How does he want me to handle my schedule, my work, my rest, my time? And when you surrender that control to God, the unknown becomes way less scary. And fear is replaced with faith. Every week we try to give a challenge. And so this is a tangible thing I hope you can take home and do. And this week's challenge is I, it's going to be a little bit more personal than last week, which was to, to begin to pray prayers of hope over your life. And actually I got a text from one of you this week saying, I've been doing the prayers of hope thing every day, and it's made a huge difference. So that's great. So go check it out on the podcast if you didn't hear it last week or whatever. But this week is going to be a little bit more personal. This is it. This week decide, what are the two or three things in your life that scare you the most? And you can see the rest of it there, but I want you to maybe pause in your brain. Like what scares you? There's a big decision ahead of you right now. There's a relationship you're wrestling with. There's a uh, medical thing you're dealing with. There's a job thing you're dealing with. Like what, what scares you? The most? You know what it is, probably. It's the thing that you laid in bed last night going, what are the two or three things? Maybe there's more than that. Ask the question, what do I fear? And then the second thing is, learn to respond with a heart like Mary. I'm the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. I say that like it's easy. But that's the steps of faith. I trust you. I trust the catcher. Pick your analogy. Wrap in paper. I don't know. But without faith, it's impossible to please God. But with faith, Jesus talks about faith. He said, man, even your smallest amount of faith, if you have a fully invested, though it might be tiny amount of faith, you can do anything, man. Just trust me, and I can work through you. Mary was a young lady who, uh, we see her in the light of 2,000 years of church history, and you know, some branches of the church have even almost deified her and put her in positions that I don't think she would ever want to be in, or that God wouldn't, didn't put her in. But that We could look at her, though, and, and, and we respect her, and we see her standing at the cross and watching Jesus die and all those things. But I want you just to go back to, like, 15-year-old Mary and understand God works and moves in normal, everyday people. And just as much as he was sitting across the room of her saying, I got big plans for you. He, he's sitting across the table from you right now saying, I got big plans for you, but do you trust me? Let it be to me as you have said. Let's pray.